0: Hello and welcome once again to the Thirsty Podcasts. My name is Jeremy Lightning, and I'm here with Pastor Zarling. The last few weeks we've been looking at Ecclesiastes and now we've reached the last chapter, Ecclesiastes 12. It has that uh, picturesque description of the aging process and uh, finally it gives us a very vivid picture of death in verse 7 when it talks about the dust returning to the ground it came from and the spirit returning to God who gave it. But all along the way, the first uh, six verses before that talk about aging. And uh, they sort of describe aging in a way that makes you think about uh, the leaves changing colors as uh, we get closer to winter. Um, And there's a lot of beauty in aging, but there's also a lot of unpleasantness Um, As I was driving to work this morning, there's a radio show out of Milwaukee that I like to listen to, and I thought it was fitting uh, that I would bring it up now. They were talking about how uh, you can't necessarily sit on the floor anymore at the age that the uh, radio hosts are getting to. Uh, Instead, they have buckets turned upside down when they're doing housework, and they just sit on those buckets. And then they went on for a a long time about the... um, Jumping from certain heights that you used to be able to jump off the back of a bed of a pickup truck, and now uh, they're getting to an age where they want to think twice about that, so that uh, they don't hurt themselves. And I thought that sounds a lot like uh, the description of aging in the first seven verses of Ecclesiastes twelve.
1: Yeah, and what you're talking about, Pastor Layton, that reminded me of uh, I was at our district mission board training meetings. Yesterday and today, and, you know, I was pretty proud of the fact that I just turned 50 this year, and, you know, things are slowing down, but I was still able to bike 3,000 miles this year. And then one of the laymen that are on the Board for Home Missions and the District Mission Board with us in another district, he's 80-plus, and he did 8,000 miles this year, 25 miles a day, uh, which is... Which is fantastic. So there are blessings in youth that you have the energy to do things, and yet for this gentleman and other people, you know, as they near or are in retirement age, uh, maybe things slow down for them, but now hopefully, Lord willing, they have time to do other things. I guess one of the things I was thinking of too as we study Ecclesiastes is for all of our listeners as you've read these chapters To think about how has Ecclesiastes helped you in your life. Uh, I I think Solomon's really trying to help us analyze life under the sun, that it's a time of uncertainty and injustice, sin abounds. And yet that's the key where we need to see that the Lord is under the sun with us. Now, honestly, in my ministry, Pastor lightning, I don't think I've really used a lot from Ecclesiastes in 25 years. I don't know about you.
0: Yeah, not not very often. I thought maybe once about a funeral sermon text for uh, th- these verses from chapter 12, but that didn't end up working.
1: Yeah. You know, I preached a few times on a cord of three strands and so forth for marriage. But yet, after studying this in depth with the two of us, I've used it a lot in the last few weeks as a number of our families here are struggling with different things. And yet I reminded them to, uh, to listen to the words of Solomon. You know, not be too pessimistic, not be too optimistic. You're going to get frustrated when you try to figure out God's plans, You know, because life often seems unfair. And that's because Solomon says it so often. Life under the sun without faith in God is meaningless. It's vapor. But what a difference for us as Christians. Life is still going to be difficult, and there's still going to be frustrations. And yet, when we see that God is in control, then we see that there is meaning for us under the sun because we trust God has a
0: plan. And I like what you said about uh, God joining us under the sun. That's what he's done in, in Jesus. He has taken on flesh and become part of our dust. He never even started to decay when he was buried in the grave because he was coming back three days later, but uh, he did go through our suffering. And I was reminded of that with uh, verse 14, where it says, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. That reminded me a lot of what Jesus said to his disciples, that there's nothing that uh, is done in secret that won't be disclosed later on. And what I tell you uh, in the inner rooms, you you should shout from the rooftops. Um, you could look at that as a verse of judgment and justice that is law, and it certainly is. Uh, but you could also come at it from the angle of, we as humans do crave justice. We don't like to see uh, people suffering injustice. We don't like to suffer it ourselves. And uh, that last verse could also leave a little bit of a gospel tone ringing in our ears of, uh, God will avenge us.
1: So now we're going to be leaving the book of Ecclesiastes and moving into the gospel of Mark. And so I'm going to give you some of the background on Mark's gospel and really Mark himself. So John Mark is a young man. He's probably the young man who uh, runs away from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, when his one-piece garment is pulled from him and then he's running naked. John Mark is also someone who is the the cousin of Barnabas, and he went with uh, Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary trip, and then Mark realized this is difficult, and he deserted them. Paul gets upset, and he doesn't want Mark to come along with them on the next trip, but Barnabas does, and then they get upset, and they separate, but then the Lord of the church uses us to multiply his ministry because now he has two different missionary teams. So Paul goes and he uses Luke and others with him. Mark goes with Barnabas and they do mission work. And then later on, we learn that Mark has teamed up with Peter. And Paul has reached out to Mark and he asks for Mark to be sent to Paul while he is in prison in Rome. And the neat thing is, Luke is there with Paul. Paul, Luke's not in prison, but he's there. And so just the concept of Mark and Luke kind of talking about these things.
0: It's a neat thing to think of. Um, I I think it is uh, Luke that they say his gospel is the most beautiful story ever told. Uh, There's just a lot of... uh, beautiful imagery and pictures that he uses, and uh, I think we were going to talk a little bit about Mark being the most action-packed gospel. Uh, what did you find on that?
1: Yeah, so Mark uses the word euthis, uh 41 times. It's translated immediately. Uh, so it's kind of like the breathless gospel. Just look for that word immediately, that Mark's going from one thing to the next, uh, that he is grouping things together, and Pastor Lightning can kind of talk about that, that Matthew is more uh, laid out history. Uh, this happened and this happened, but Mark is kind of bringing different events in. and Something else about Mark and who he was, that his mother is probably the one who uh, allowed, he, he, she had that upper room where Jesus then has the disciples for the Passover meal. Okay, So Mark is around, and although he's not a disciple, he's not really a follower, but he is there with Peter, and a lot of people really believe then that, uh, from history, that Mark's gospel is really Peter's gospel. In fact, one of our early church fathers, Papias, who was a disciple of John the Apostle, uh, one of the gospel writers, mentions When Mark became Peter's interpreter, he wrote down accurately, though by no means in order, as much as he remembered of the words and deeds of the Lord, for he had neither heard the Lord nor been in his company, but subsequently joined Peter. And other church fathers say the same thing, that Mark just remembered the words of Peter. And, you know, when you really focus on Mark and you kind of see Peter standing out in the gospel— and that's because it's Peter's gospel, and then the Holy Spirit uh, inspires Mark to write everything the way he does.
0: And uh, what you had just said is uh, kind of important. That uh, you said it was it was Papius or P- Papius, the church father, who said it was not necessarily in order. Uh, and that's an important thing to think of, because um, I think when we think of modern history books. Uh, We think, well, it has to be uh, sequential, that this happened and then this happened and then that happened. Well, that church father just told us right there, this is not necessarily how they recorded history. That doesn't mean it's unreliable. That doesn't mean it's false. Uh, It just means when they recorded history, they had a different uh, purpose for it. Maybe they wanted to put anecdotes side by side so that you could uh, compare two different events in Jesus' life and contrast them with each other. Uh yeah maybe Matthew was a little more sequential you see uh him be, uh, coming from the bookkeeping type of a profession he was a tax collector uh and so he was very organized and orderly uh Mark it seems to be a little more uh frantic and and eager to share his message and and so he it sounds I like that I didn't ever think of that before the breathless gospel he's kind of always in a little bit of a hurry
1: Yeah, and what Mark is really doing then is he is giving credentials for Jesus, as he says in the the very first uh, uh, verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's kind of like the theme that he is out to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one, and he is also the Son of God. And so, you don't have a lot of long discourses and teachings or even a lot of parables. You have a lot of action, uh, Jesus' miracles. He is writing to a Gentile audience, and that, you know, Matthew has a lot of Old Testament passages. You have a lot of Old Testament sacrifices. He's writing to a Hebrew, a Jewish audience. Mark is writing to a Gentile audience, probably from Rome. And so he. Doesn't explain. He doesn't use any of those Old Testament uh, passages. Only two. And that's right in the beginning of the gospel, uh, and he is really focused on proving to people who believe in uh, the false gods of the Greeks and the Romans that Jesus is the true God. And wh- one other word I wanted to focus on because this was the geeky stuff for you is the word edu. Uh, in the King James, it was translated "Behold." In our translation, we're using the evangelical heritage version. It's look. And what Mark is saying with that word is look, behold, something special is coming. And uh, you know, there's a new show on Disney Plus. I know Pastor Lightning and you haven't watched it yet. It's uh WandaVision. It's in the Marvel Universe. And it's it's pretty geeky. It starts out as an old 50s or 60s sitcom like Leave it to Beaver or I Love Lucy or the Dick Van Dyke show. And then as you go through in the second episode, there's color and it goes from black and white to color. There's little what we call Easter eggs. It might be a toy helicopter that's color while everything else is black and white. It might be something that someone says or a brooch on uh, one of the characters or a look that someone gives. And then really geeky people on YouTube that I watch they give you the easter eggs but what the easter eggs are they're call back to things in the past or watch for this in the future and that's what I like in the word look for you know mark is saying here is something that's uh, really important and it's going to pay off uh, in the future so pay attention to it
0: do you know the movie uh, pleasantville yeah so that that's another one where they they go from black and white to color. Or the other one I thought of is uh, Schindler's List, where you have the little girl with the red coat on, uh, that that just makes it really stand out after all the black and white. Uh, and uh, they, yeah, that's a good point of what I do is all about. The, the, pay special attention to this. This is this should stand out from the rest. The rest is important, uh, but this one really needs to stand out from the rest.
1: So let's get into the Gospel of of Mark. Uh, And like I said before, Mark is writing for Gentile believers. The theme verse is the first verse. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so now look for in all of these miracles and the few teachings that Mark includes that he is giving these credentials, this proof, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then he has two passages from Malachi and Isaiah that point to John the Baptist and then to Jesus fulfilling their roles, uh, giving the credentials of John and Jesus. And I think I'm correct in saying these are the only Old Testament passages that Mark uses.
0: Uh, One thing I will say about chapter 1, it actually just struck me right this second, is uh, I've heard what Pastor Zarling said before about Mark being for a, a largely Gentile, non-Jewish audience, and yet then when he starts within the very second verse, quoting an Old Testament passage, uh, that that really makes the Old Testament passage stand out a lot. Uh, but then the other things that uh, he talks about in chapter 1, you could do much more detailed study on them in other Gospels, and Mark just skims right over them uh, with, with just one or two verses. Uh, Jesus got baptized. That's done. He doesn't really even mention his birth or any anecdotes about uh, his childhood at all. Uh, He got baptized. Uh, He spent some time in the desert. Uh, The Holy Spirit sent him out into the desert. You could talk about that more, but Mark keeps things moving. Uh, And then he's calling the disciples already. Uh, Come follow me. Uh, Peter, uh, not, uh, excuse me, Uh, James and, oh yeah, no, that is Peter. Simon uh, and Andrew and then James and John. Uh, And then we're already uh, getting up to the casting out of an evil spirit.
1: Yeah, exactly. So uh, I'm going to be talking about this in my sermon for this Sunday, is the calling of the disciples is, uh, you know, they are called to put down their nets that they had their lives planned out to James and John to work for their dad, maybe the Zebedee and Sons Fishing Company. They're working with their servants and maybe their good friends uh, who are brothers, Andrew and, and Simon Peter. And then Jesus calls them. They put down their nets and then they go for three years of traveling seminary on the mountain, in the synagogue, in the temple courtyard, in the upper room. And then uh, Jesus goes on, he teaches in the synagogue, and the next lesson, he teaches with authority. There is authority in Jesus' words to have people change their entire lives, and then the authority uh, in the synagogue, because the other rabbis and religious leaders, they did not teach with authority, and he demonstrates his authority to drive an evil spirit out of a man. So again, Mark is giving us Jesus' credentials as the Christ, as the Son of God. He's shown Jesus' credentials in the Jordan River, in the wilderness, in his call of discipleship, in his message of repentance and forgiveness, and now in the credentials in his authority.
0: One of the uh, individuals that uh, sort of served me as a, a pastor figure in my life uh he had a, a saying about Luther's small catechism. He he would say, Do you know what the most outrageous words are that Luther wrote in the catechism? Uh and and if you knew them, you knew the answer. But it was, and this is most certainly true. Mm-hmm. That's that's really an outrageous statement to make. Uh that that you can say something for certain. Uh there's so much uncertainty in this world. Ecclesiastes showed us that uh, and yet that's really what uh, jesus brought was certainty when he could teach with authority uh that's that's a valuable thing because it's so rare
1: and then mark records that jesus goes to capernaum where peter and andrew and james and john are from on the shore of the sea of galilee and jesus heals peter's mother-in-law and you know this might seem oh this is cool but again remember that this is probably Peter's gospel given to Mark. And just imagine how often Peter probably told that story, that maybe his mom is on her deathbed with fever. You know, they didn't have the kind of medicine in hospitals we have. And now she's so she's so immediately and so fantastically healed that she gets up in gratitude and begins serving Jesus and his disciples. And think of How many times Mark must have heard that story from Peter's lips as he told it?
0: Uh, I just have to add that I was uh, blessed and privileged enough to take a tour of the Holy Land. And uh, when we went to Capernaum, uh, our tour guide made the comment about uh, verse 29 that uh, as soon as they left the synagogue, uh, it kind of makes it sound like they just almost walked right across the street from the synagogue to Peter's mother-in-law's house. And our tour guide told us, uh, and then uh, Jesus went into Peter's um, house and healed Peter's mother-in-law, and they still stayed friends after that. <laughs> and if
1: you get a chance to go to Israel, when did you go, Pastor Leighton? Uh
0: That was my last year at the seminary, so about 2009,
1: 2008. Okay, so I went about 12 years ago. I was blessed to go. And it is really neat to be able to go over there. I encourage all of you who are listening you get a chance to go to Israel, go to see where Jesus walked. Uh, the neat thing is going to the synagogue, and the walls are still standing there in Capernaum, not all of them, but you can see where it was. It looks like a small church today, but then walking kind of across the street to what they think was Peter's house, which is kind of round, and you walk in into the house, and then you walk around and you go up up a little ramp, and there's a church that's above where Peter's house is, and it's really neat. is uh, It's kind of a round church, and then there's a place you can look down into Peter's home.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 um, the uh, next section talks about um, Jesus having a, a little relaxation time or leisure time, uh, which, of course— is important, and I think uh, it's a good thing that uh, we should all apply, uh, n- not just for pampering ourselves, but for uh, meditating and praying and and uh, being in God's Word. Uh, in verse thirty-eight, uh, Jesus replied, "Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages, uh, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come." Yeah, and then going on to chapter two, uh, Jesus
1: heals a paralyzed man. Uh, that uh, these had to be pretty good friends, carrying this man and then cutting a hole in the roof. You know, they were thatched roofs back then, first-story homes. But I just imagine uh, friends today coming to the home of uh, someone where Jesus is teaching and got a couple of chainsaws or sawzalls and then cutting to the roof, lowering down their friend. But I because I was studying this for the podcast and for my daily Bible reading, I used this text a couple of times with one of our members who's in the hospital and one of our members who is uh, recovering in rehab and just uh, telling them that, uh, you know, we're going to pray that Jesus heals them so they can get up and walk, walk out of the hospital, walk out of rehab but reminding them that Jesus has provided them with the greatest healing of all already, which is the forgiveness of sins. And so whether they remain in their beds or uh, they get up and walk, they will always have the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. That's the most important part.
0: The verses after that uh, really stand out to me as I look at what we just discussed in chapter 1 about calling uh, the disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Uh, Because then comes uh, the calling of Levi or Matthew. And one thing that you might not think about is how he would have been such a social outcast that uh, he would have been with a a different group of people than uh, the fishermen that Jesus was calling, probably a less popular group of people. And so it's not surprising that he gets called separately and has special attention drawn to it. Uh, But uh, another great thing for us to think about is, uh, how Jesus says it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I think we tried, everybody's tried so often to impress uh, one another. And really what we're trying to do is impress God by uh, our good deeds. And Jesus says, that's not the type of person that I came for. I didn't come uh, to be impressed. I came to help sick people uh, and especially spiritually sick people with the forgiveness of sins.
1: And with that, too, uh, Pastor Lightning focused on and pointed out that Levi or Matthew was a tax collector. Uh, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, when they weren't doing disciple stuff with Jesus, they could go back and fish. Matthew couldn't. He couldn't go back and, hey, I'm going to do some tax collecting for a few weeks. This was a big sacrifice for him to give that up. And I I think, uh, really think about talking to praying to God for uh, your your pastor your teachers your called workers who may give up a lot of things because you know your pastors for example they've got a master's degree eight years of intensive study and you know they could be doing a lot of other things and your teachers also uh, they would be making a lot more in the public school system and yet the pastors and teachers, they're called by God to give up those things to sacrifice for you and the rest of God's people, and we thank Matthew and Peter, James, John, Andrew, that they gave up their lives to follow Jesus, and we thank our I thank God for the pastors in my high school that you know and my grade school that kind of encouraged me to go into the ministry and uh, you know, we sacrifice for it, but we're grateful to be serving you in this ministry as well.
0: And there, there are other kinds of rewards, too. It, it may not be monetary, uh, but uh, it, it, that also contrasts with the next section. Well, oh, we're the, talking about
1: perks. Someone on, on Sunday, we have our coffee bar at church, and I was filling up my coffee, and there's creamer there for everyone else. But then there's, in their little fridge there behind the coffee bar, there's Snickers creamer just for Pastor Zarling. And... <laughs> One of the members said, what is that? I said, that's one of the perks I get for being the pastor here.
0: There you go. The Snickers creamer. Uh, I it, I was also thinking that it contrasted with the next section a little bit. Uh, people were wondering, why didn't uh, Jesus' disciples fast like the Pharisees' students and John's students did? Uh, and really what that means, yes, it has to do with giving up food, but it sort of has to do with your whole lifestyle. Uh, in other words, they were asking Jesus, why, why, Jesus, don't your disciples look like they're taking their studies more seriously? Why are they having such a fun time? Uh, it looks like there's just always a party going on. Uh, and uh, really, if you're being a religious person, boy, you should be uh, have, a, have a serious look on your face and li- lead a very strict lifestyle. And uh, Jesus answers with the rhetorical question, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as uh, they have him with them. Um, in other words, Jesus is saying this is uh, not the worldly kind of religion that says uh, you're only really a religious person if you if you are serious and have a strict look on your face. Uh, no, this is a, a time of rejoicing, especially for the people who got to see uh, and, and interact with God in the flesh walking on this earth.
1: And that's a great point. I think of discussions I've had in Bible study about people coming up for the Lord's Supper. Mm. So often as Lutheran Christians, they're really serious. Mm-hmm. And we talked about that. And people say, well, I'm serious because this is serious stuff. I'm receiving Christ's body and blood. But then others will say, I'm coming up with a big smile on my face because... I'm receiving Christ's body and blood. Yeah, I'm yeah. receiving the forgiveness of my sins and uh, the unity of the faith of all of those with whom I'm communing. And, you know, the point Jesus is making here is you, you fast while you're waiting for the bridegroom or and, and after. But the bridegroom is here. He's among them. So, like you said, it's the time
0: to rejoice,
1: the time to party. Uh,
0: the next section is uh, something that comes up in many of the Gospels. Uh, talking about Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath, uh, and this was a constant uh, conflict that Jesus had with the Pharisees, that uh, they they couldn't believe it that he would uh, violate the Sabbath laws, which, of course, were not uh, the real Sabbath laws that God had given. They were explanations of God's Sabbath law that made it even more strict, that you could only—I'll go back to another uh, Holy Land tour— uh, Anecdote. Um, we stayed in a hotel in Jerusalem, and I, I I love telling this story. We stayed in a hotel in Jerusalem that had a Sabbath setting for the elevator. Uh in other words, on the Sabbath, the elevator goes up one floor and opens the doors and closes them, and up one floor and up opens the doors and closes them. It gets to the top, and then it starts going down one floor, opens the doors and closes them, down one floor opens the doors and closes them. Uh and uh the, the reason for that is the you, yeah, you, go what, go ahead. The, I, I
1: stayed in the exact same hotel. Okay,
0: that uh, pressing a button would be working on the Sabbath, so they have the elevator set so that you don't even have to press a button uh, on on the Sabbath to do that work. Um, you can you can see how when when humans take God's words and uh, try to put hedges around them. Uh, and explain them to make sure there's no possible way you could ever uh break them that's not really the spirit of uh, what Jesus is saying here and and he says he give well he gives the example i'll let you uh, point out the story from the old testament that Jesus uses to illustrate his point
1: yeah and it's interesting i love telling my shabbat my sabbath elevator story too uh yeah so the sabbath laws of the old testament were designed to help people but the pharisees were using it to lord it over people, to harm people. Uh, And so the Sabbath is intended to provide rest from labor, but not to prevent Jesus from healing people. Jesus is saying he is greater than the Sabbath. The Sabbath was supposed to point to him as the Lord of rest. Now he is there.
0: And and he uses this example of uh, King David sort of breaking protocol uh by eating the bread from the tabernacle that was really only supposed to be for the priests to eat and yet uh we have no word in the old testament that uh david did anything sinful or wrong by doing that and jesus uses that point to say uh it, it's not that it, as soon as the laws are harming uh people more than helping them uh, that then we need to drop the the rules or the uh, laws that are simply a burden, and then he he follows up with that uh, other controversy about healing on the Sabbath that uh, Pastor Zarling mentioned. Um, that I, I guess I just now am seeing that those two compared side by side is a, a very interesting uh, comparison.
1: And then Mark leads right into uh, Jesus in chapter three entering the synagogue and healing a man on the Sabbath day with a withered hand. And then he goes on and he withdrew to the sea with his disciples, but large crowds are seeing and hearing about all of these miracles. And they're bringing people with illnesses and, uh, who are filled with unclean spirits or demons and Jesus heals people. He drives out these evil spirits, uh, And this is another demonstration of the power of the word. So the the miracles are working. They were signs and wonders to draw people to Jesus so that he would then have the opportunity to share God's word with them. A similar example might be our Lutheran elementary school or an area Lutheran high school. That parents will flock to those schools and bring their students to fill them up because of these signs and wonders that these are schools that are safe, they have a a great learning environment, math and science classes, athletics, high academic achievement, and so on. But then, once we have those students in our classrooms, like Jesus, we we have the opportunity to share God's powerful word with them. But I also think that with some of our students, it might seem like we're driving out unclean spirits too.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, th- there's probably more truth to that. I mean, uh, th- th- we're taking over territory that uh, the devil would dearly love to have at um, the young people's souls and minds. Uh, so I yeah, I, I, I mean, I chuckle, but at the same time, there's probably a lot of truth to that. Um, verses uh, 13 through 19, th- there's so much we could talk about when Jesus uh, picks his apostles, uh, you could talk about how the, all of their flaws are are put on display Just a, in just a little bit uh, when you have mention of Judas, who betrayed him, and, and how Jesus changed the names of his apostles. There are hints there of their sinfulness that we can certainly relate to. Uh, but I'm going to talk instead about uh, something that I know Pastor Zarling has mentioned on many occasions, which is apologetics. And I think that's an important thing to look at in these verses. Jesus was picking out 12 eyewitnesses, and and that's the same number of people that we still today, even in secular society, we have the same number of people to decide a matter in court, uh, a jury of 12 people, and uh, this is what Jesus did. He picked out 12 eyewitnesses so that they could be with him and see his ministry, but then most importantly, so that they would see he really did die, and then he really did come back from the dead. Uh, and, and that you can't refute that. This is, this is historic documentation, and uh, this, these verses show Mark uh, recording G- how Jesus picked out his 12 eyewitnesses who would record this history.
1: And then the last eyewitness who uh, couldn't give his testimony, Judas Iscariot, uh, the one who betrayed him, And I'm always amazed at how the gospel writers, they leave Judas to the last of the list, and then they identify him early on in their gospel as the one who betrayed him. And I just want all of you who are listening to kind of think of it this way. You and I know how the story ends. We know about Judas betraying Jesus and that leading to his arrest and crucifixion. But I want you to imagine being the first readers of Mark's gospel. And already here in chapter 3, you're you you're hearing the names of these apostles, and then Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. What does that mean? And there's one of those Easter eggs I was talking about before. Here's a foreshadowing. Here in chapter 3, Mark is telling you about what's going to happen in chapter 14.
0: And uh, I suppose you could also find some comfort in the fact that even though Jesus knew uh, up front that uh, Judas would betray him, that didn't stop him from picking Judas as an apostle. Uh, and so no no matter how sinful you might think you are, uh, that doesn't stop Jesus from picking you for eternal life. Uh, I want to just briefly touch on the verses about Jesus and Beelzebub. The enemies of Christ pointed out that, uh, or they they thought they could point out that Jesus might be driving out demons by the power of Satan. <clears throat> and Jesus goes on to make some great logical points that uh, that doesn't even make sense, even if it would be true. Um, but uh, the the thing that I wanted to talk about is the topic of the sin against the Holy Spirit. And uh, if you run in uh, theological groups and do a lot of doctrinal-type talking or studying, uh, it's very easy for uh, teachers of the church to... Um, wax eloquent about the sin against the Holy Spirit and everything that it is and everything that it isn't. Um, But I think the story itself gives the best example uh, when Jesus says this, um, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Jesus is talking to people who just got done saying that his work was actually the work of the devil. And that's really the best way to understand the sin against the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's not unbelief. It's not uh, these—I saw one time or heard about these people on uh, YouTube who would record themselves saying, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Well, yeah, that's a bad thing to say, but that's not necessarily the sin against the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's it's when you say that the work of the Holy Spirit is actually the work of the devil. And uh, if you're worried that you committed this sin, don't worry, because it— People who commit this sin aren't worried about committing this sin. Uh, It's not. It's not something that you just stumble upon. Um, It is uh, something when you intentionally say that uh, something like communion or baptism or the words of Christ written in Scripture. If you say those things are actually the work of the devil, you're cutting yourself off from forgiveness. It's not that there is no forgiveness. It's that you're cutting off the channel that brings you that forgiveness.
1: Yeah, It's like what the writer to the Hebrews says, uh, treating as an unholy thing the sacrifice of the Son of God. And so to help us so that we don't become those people who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, uh, then we go into chapter 4 with the parables, these earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And you've got the parable of the sower and the seed, and the disciples don't get it. So Jesus teaches it. And the idea is that you sow the seed, and the seed is God's word, and it lands in different types of of soil. They've got a, a path, a, a walkway, and thir- thorny soil, and rocky soil, and then good soil. And that the seed blossoms in the good soil. It 30, 60, 100 times more than was sown. And And I think of Lots of examples like that of children I've baptized over the 25 years in the pastoral ministry, and then sadly, they don't see those children and their parents again. And yet, one of my greatest joys is one of the first children I baptized in our mission congregation in Kentucky that now she is, uh, in her finishing years at Martin Luther College, to become a teacher, you know And then the Lord is blessing that seed that was planted over 20 years ago to who knows how it's going to blossom in her classroom. Or sadly, I have had adults that I've taken through adult confirmation class and that's a lot of effort for them. 14 lessons, three and a half months of their time. And my classes are pretty in-depth. And they go through all the classes, they're confirmed, and I never see them again. And that's because something happens. There is some worry, some temptation, some stress that rob them of their faith. And yet last night, I was talking to another pastor over dinner about his son-in-law. His son-in-law is a young man that came to us while he was in high school and not our Lutheran high school. And he sat down in the pew after church. He introduced himself to me. And then he said, what do I need to do to join your church? It's the first time he stepped foot in our church and wanted to join it. And, well, I thought maybe it was just a really good sermon. But it was that uh, he had met a young lady who was wisconsin and a Lutheran, and he wanted to, uh, you know, he fell in love with her, and uh, he wanted to become wisconsin a Lutheran. So he went through the classes. He eventually... Uh, got engaged to her and got married to her. And then they moved to the next town over and went to one of the churches over there. And I learned last night from his father-in-law that here's this young man that is in his early 20s, an adult confirmand that is now one of the leaders on their church, on the church council. So God is planting that seed and then growing it hundred times more than what was sown.
0: And, uh, for many of you listening maybe uh, you're you're probably not a, a minister of the gospel um and uh, so you might wonder about this parable uh what what you're supposed to do with it um i think you can take some comfort from it and and what i mean by that is this uh, how really can we say you know be the the good soil did can soil make itself good uh no it it needs somebody else to do the work on it and that's that's really what Christ does through his words and sacraments for us. Uh, he does the work on us. So, uh, yeah, we have rocky hearts. We have weed-infested hearts. Uh, we have hard-packed hearts. All those different types of soil, uh, and yet uh, the soil doesn't really have much power to help itself. Uh, thanks be to Christ that he does the work for us. Um, the only other thing I wanted to say on this uh, closing of chapter 4 is simply about uh, the parables in general. Uh, Verses 33 and 34 say, With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them uh, as much as they could understand. 34, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. Um, What that makes me think of is how he wanted to make his words relatable to the people who were learning from him. So he made sure not just to teach abstract concepts, but also to illustrate them to put visions in front of their eyes to put images make make his words and teachings tangible so he said well you guys know about seeds right mustard seed you know about how seeds grow even if you don't understand how they grow you know that they grow uh, and uh, he he always found a way to make it so that people's minds could grasp it
1: and then the other parable he tells then is about the mustard seed the smallest one of the smallest seeds you'd have in the garden and yet it grows to be this huge tree in the garden. And I liken that to the Roman Empire that Mark is writing during a time when the Roman Empire is beginning to ramp up their persecution of Christians. And then to apply this to a Christian's life in that time period of knowing they're being persecuted for this mustard seed of the gospel that's in their hearts, and yet what happens to the Roman Empire? This is a vast empire that extends into Europe and into the uh, Middle East and now into Africa and so forth. And yet today, it's nothing. There is no empire. And what has grown? The tree, the mustard tree of God's kingdom. And applying it to today, because you've seen this the last few weeks with big tech, things like Facebook, Google, Twitter, Twitter you know censoring certain people and understanding that that could happen to Christians and Christian churches I already received an email from our email provider months ago saying if they reserve the right that if we say or do anything they don't like boom they they can cut us off and big tech can do that too and right now a lot of our churches are relying on social media, big tech, to get the gospel out, which is fantastic. But I think understanding that there will come a time when they may try and cut everything off, and then we look for alternate avenues. There may come a time in America where uh, our government does the same thing that's happened throughout history and every government in the history of the world of trying to shut down the Christian church. And yet, we should never be worried about it. We should never be terrified of it. We can be concerned and prepare for it. But, you know, think of the Roman Empire. There was a bigger difference between their leaders and the very poor people in Africa and the Middle East than there is from Big Tech and us. And yet God, God will always get his kingdom to spread out uh the tree will overcome the garden uh it will overcome any kind of government any kind of empire any kind of big tech or social media or whatever is out there you cannot stop the seed of the gospel
0: and that uh just really turned a light bulb on for me as you were talking because uh i i can sort of see the the sense or the logic behind uh the way mark lays out his gospel that the very next thing to talk about is uh People who are very afraid and terrified when Jesus calmed the storm. And uh, uh you, you you could make that point using the parable of the mustard seed, uh that grew into the big tree, and you can also make the same point with talking about Jesus calming the storm. Um I, I don't have much to say about this, but I did want to shoehorn one thing in uh and and you've shoehorned enough uh Star Wars and uh, comic <laughs> book things in that I, I won't feel too bad about this, but uh my wife pointed out that this uh, podcast is going to be uh, at least heard a little bit in uh, Toledo, Ohio. And uh, that is my hometown. I was born in Toledo and uh, I'm proud of that and I love I love that place and I always enjoy going back there. I haven't done it very often, but uh, I enjoy it when I do. And um, it it makes me think of my dad was a pastor at, at Arlington Avenue Lutheran Church and uh, a lot of times there would be storms at night and uh i i think i'm remembering this right but it was many years ago uh that there would be a storm at night and i think it happened more than once uh i would be terrified and shaking and crying up in my bed and my dad would come up and uh tell me some word of god and more than once it had to have been uh jesus calming the storm why are you so afraid do you still have no faith this is the jesus who can I knew I was remembering this right. He, I did do this because I was—I was kind of a s- snot-nosed little kid that I liked to <laughs> like to correct people, and uh, and uh, my dad was telling me the story one time when I was scared, and he said, and then Jesus told the wind and the waves, "Now you settle down, you be quiet, you scary wind and waves." <laughs> and 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 my dad said that I uh, I interrupted him and told him. No, Dad, Jesus said, peace, be still. <laughs> nice. And with that, I
1: think sometimes it may seem like Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat of your life. So perhaps we should just stop and rest knowing that Jesus is still in charge and he will still take care of us. So in closing, one of, the, one of our friends complimented the podcast you know, I don't think that what Pastor Lightning and I are doing is anything truly special. But she put it this way: is it's not a sermon, it's not a Bible study. It's kind of like it's just sitting down, talking to your pastor, and shooting the breeze, and just learning Scripture from him. And, and I hope that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, so my encouragement for you is to read Mark chapter five through ten for next week, uh, or listen to Pastor Hagen as he reads it and then explains it. And then my encouragement is stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.